like any other scientific um, enterprise, risk assessment has its limits. Um, and it, interestingly, I was just thinking about this recently. Um, risk assessment is actually a niche science, so you don't um, you don't find a lot of people in the scientific community, the larger scientific community, talking about risk assessment. You pretty much have to be doing um, you have to be an environmental health scientist, or you have to be doing work at FDA, EPA, NIOSH, or OSHA to even know the word risk assessment the way we know it, or the term risk assessment the way we know it. So, um, and because of that, I think the one of the disadvantages of having it be this very niche science is that we don't often have a lot of advancements in the um, analytical tools that need uh, that we use in order to um, conduct these assessments and make decisions. So we, we have a framework that's pretty rigid, um, was set by what we call the Red Book, which was developed by the National Research Council, uh, a National Research Council panel back in 1993. And um, we've had um, updates of that Red Book um, paradigm of framing since then. But, uh, you know, there are still the problems we've always had with risk assessment are still there. So what are some of these problems? The first one is that um, risk assessment was first developed to kind of focus on chemical stressors. So if we take a step back and look at the, the larger world of who uses risk assessment, so um, you would also look at um, folks at FDA, um, practitioners at FDA who are doing um, risk assessments around food. Um, and then, um, of course, EPA is the other big user of risk assessments. And then um, organizations like the Occupational Safety and Health Administration do risk assessments to protect workers in the work environment. So... Um, since um, the Red Book was published, and after that, we had a Silver Book published in the 2000s, um, we, we've still grappled with issues like not being able to account for non-chemical stressors. We know that non-chemical stressors are very important, and let me explain that a little bit. So um, non-chemical stressors refer to those um, factors other than the chemical. Let's say we're trying to regulate or find out if chemical X is a hazard. So in other words, does it have negative effects on, let's say, hypertension? Does it cause hypertension, right? So as we're trying to address whether, figure out whether chemical X causes hypertension, we find out that, yes, there is a relationship between exposure to chemical X and hypertension. But then we also find out that, or we know that being exposed to psychosocial stress. So, and psychosocial stress can be triggered by many things. It can be triggered by economic circumstances. It can be triggered by uh, job loss, um, you know, distress, social distress, um, so many triggers. Well, we know that um, exposure to psychosocial stress also affects the same system and also is associated with hypertension. So what happens when these two things are happening? at the same time to an individual. What happens when a population is co-exposed to these two things? And what we're finding, for example, with lead exposure, so lead is the heavy metal that um, was used in paint several decades ago in the last century. So with lead in paint, it has this negative effect in children and in adults to a cognitive function. So it, it affects the prefrontal cortex. 
And then we also now, um, in recent, in the last couple of years, have studies showing that psychosocial stress also affects the same part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and in the same way. Mm -hmm. And then there were now studies showing that when you combine these two stressors, the non-chemical stressor, which is psychosocial stress, and the chemical stressor, which is lead, that you now have this effect, this combined effect, and it's more than additive on the prefrontal cortex. So what risk assessment has not been able to allow us to do is to consider more of these um, social stressors, if you will. And in environmental justice, the social stressor issue is a real issue, right? Because we're looking at communities where um, there's, there's like a, a convergence of things not going well with the social determinants of health, uh, whether it's economic circumstances, whether it's people experiencing social stress in their environments, um, whether it's people not having access to healthcare, um, even people being subjected to um, the, the, the effects of climate change. So there's a convergence of negative factors in, in, in some populations, more so than in others. And um, what the literature consistently says is that um, the, the racial ethnic minorities or people of color are those who are most impacted by these other co-exposures. So the biggest thing for risk assessment in terms of moving forward is we need to develop a way for us to begin to think about these non-chemical stressors as the context of exposure. How is it changing the risk profile? How is it making uh, populations more sensitive? Because it's from what we've learned um, with lead and psychosocial stress interactions and even psychosocial stress on lead and cardiovascular disease, we're seeing that perhaps there's a whole part of the equation that we're not quite able to, uh, we're not aware of, we don't have information on it. And so the question then becomes, um, are we being protective enough, you know, as we regulate um, almost blindly because we don't know much about what's going on with the social factors or social stresses. And we are, we don't have, um, the tools to account for the effect of these social stressors. Cumulative impacts, in many ways, is actually um, one could one could one could view it as a response to the limitations of risk assessment because, you know, people don't exist in a vacuum, and so when they are exposed to a chemical stressor, that exposure is not happening within a vacuum. Um, it is happening. It is one more thing added to the multiple exposures that people are experiencing as they go about living their daily lives. So those multiple exposures are exposures to other chemicals, right? So even though, so we have a stovepipe or we have a facility in the community, chances are it's not emitting only one chemical. Chances are it's emitting a whole lot of chemicals. Good examples would be like refineries, uh, petrochemical industries, they emit way more than one chemical. So that's all that chemical exposure happening at the same time as the exposure that EPA has been asked to regulate by Congress. Then, aside from the chemical exposures, there are all these other stressors. So if you look at communities that live by the fence line, these are communities that you know have multiple social disadvantages. So they usually would have socioeconomic issues, food insecurity, um, you know, not having access to health care and so on. All that is going on. And we know that those things actually affect the biology. Those things affect the response 
um, the, the state of the body and the body's ability to respond when faced with a, with a toxic insult. And so you now combine the two and the question is, what's, what's, what's happening to the risk associated with these chemical, with the chemical stressor of interest when you have all this other stuff going on? And we know that it's not possible for the body to remain in a pristine state or to be operating optimally when it's faced with all these things. And so because risk assessment relies on mechanistic data, which is data where we're trying to establish biological plausibility, which is good, which is good, because if I, if I told you that X causes Y disease, naturally you would want to know, can you tell me how? Like what, what, cha what changes? What are, what are the precursor events? And um, uh, so we go from this to cell damage, okay? And then from cell damage, we, we go to like fatty liver. And then from fatty liver, we now go to cancer. So when we do that, it makes our risk assessments stronger because then we can argue. And if we're taken to court, we can say, there is no doubt from a biological perspective, we must regulate this chemical because if we don't, here is what can happen. Hmm. But the problem is, we don't have enough data. We have thousands of chemicals that are out there. Um, even for some of the chemicals that are not so new, so we know about them, we don't even have enough information. It takes a lot of resources to get the type of data that is needed to establish biological plausibility. And so because of that, many chemicals that are out there, we don't have enough data to say anything about uh, to say much about you know how they how exposure will result in a negative health outcome, and so when we when we don't have that pl biological plausibility or causal data, some people will call it causal data. What we end up doing is um, you're you're not able to to do much with a risk assessment. You're not able to take into account. So if someone says you know I'm also exposed to psychosocial stress. If we don't have the data to show that on its own, psychosocial stress is impacting the same target organ and there's a shared mechanism of action perhaps, and that, you know, I added data that would be amazing is that um, we're, we're seeing an interaction between the exposure to psychosocial stress and this particular chemical we're regulating. So when we don't have those lines of evidence, uh, what ends up happening is you can't really take into account um, that other factor, which is the psychosocial stress in this example. And um, a lot of our stakeholders um, and scientists are saying, well, what's happening then is we're not being as protective as we could be with our standards. So what happened is cumulative impact emerged as a way to kind of overcome the barriers in risk assessment. With cumulative impact, you're really taking a census, if you will, of the, the negative social conditions in addition to the negative chemical conditions in the community. And you're, you're taking the census um, as part of your, um, your, your work or your assessment to inform a decision about maybe a facility, um, a permit for a facility, um, that would limit the release of a particular chemical, or maybe even um, decisions about whether or not the uh, an extra facility should be opened in a community. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one thing that cumulative impacts assessment does that um, we're not able to do in risk assessment yet. So in terms of 
where we're headed um, at EPA, we are definitely keen on being able to look at combined exposures. So a lot of times when we use the term cumulative, it kind of triggers a lot of meanings for different people. But the, the simple English word for it, for it is looking at the combined exposures that um, any given population group is experiencing and, and what, that, what that does to their risk profile as it relates to a particular um, um, decision that has to be made to protect their health. And, and so what we um, are thinking of doing is one of the tools we've had for a long time is we have cumulative risk assessment. And um, cumulative risk assessment, it does allow us to look at a combined exposure to chemical stressors, but that's just about it, it's chemical stressors. And now we're trying to move into that arena where we begin to think about, well, how do we consider non-chemical stressors within the context of um, um, chemical stressors. So how do we combine those two pieces of information within uh, our cumulative risk assessment framework? We're still thinking about it. We're working on it. Um, it hasn't gotten to a, a point where we know exactly what we're going to do, but it's some, it's active conversation that's going on. And then cum the other part is um, the, the cumulative impacts assessment approach, which is you know, less dependent on establishing causality and um, less um, focused on, you know, establishing biological plausibility using mechanistic data. Um, that that piece is now is now being um, developed. It's very very heavy on just using indicators such as identifying put, uh, communities that have potential vulnerability or sensitivities. It's it's almost like um, um, uh, an implied. Um, uh, some kind of consensus that, you know what, if people don't have, um, if people have food insecurity and can't eat uh, three square meals or eat healthy foods, we have to assume that, they're not, that their bodies are not operating optimally. Um, if people don't have jobs, uh, people don't have access to health care, we have to just assume that um, all is not well. And there's a lot of data showing that, for example, when people don't have access to health care, um, they're not taking care of, say, their cardiovascular issues, right? And they're not taking care of their diabetes. Um, and so if you have um, like a cardiovascular toxin or if you have um, something that's an endocrine disruptor um, or even with diabetes, it, it, diabetes impacts, negatively impacts the immune system. So if you have um, someone whose immune system is not um, operating optimally because they have diabetes, you can make a lot of safe assumptions um, about um, what exposure will do to them if that exposure requires that the immune system um, take action to prevent it from um, it, you know, exerting a negative impact on health. So that that's, that's why we have a lot of focus on cumulative impacts mm -hmm. assessment right now. And in the agency, we're trying to see how we can learn from states like um, New Jersey, California, um, who have been, you know, working on using cumulative impacts um, to address, to inform some of their key decisions. And um, we're trying to see what we can do with their experiences and what they've been able to accomplish and, and how we can use it to also inform some of the decisions that we have to make um, at EPA. So that's, that's an active conversation that's going on right now among EPA scientists and decision makers.